Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Stunning 8K resolution meditation app. In honor of the revolution, it's half off at the gap. Deadpool self awareness, loving parents, harmless fun. The backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun. There it is again, that funny feeling, that funny feeling. All right, today, well, let me just, let me set it up a couple of different ways. So uh, I have a friend uh, who checks in on me. Uh, He knows I'm dealing with some things in my family, in my life. Uh, And today, my friend, let's call him Greg. Uh, sent me a text, which he he usually sends me the same text. And the text is just, how are you? And I haven't answered the text yet because, you know, it's, I want to answer honestly and accurately, but how are you? I don't know, how am I right now? What sorts of feelings am I having right now? How am I dealing with the stuff I have to deal with every day? What's making me happy? What's making me sad? What's making me worried? And in what sorts uh, of gravitational pulls and pushes do those emotions and other feelings exist inside of me at a given moment. It's actually, if you want to be an accurate reporter, that's hard. It's hard, really, to give an assessment of how you are if you're determined to be honest about it, which, by the way, Greg, is why I haven't gotten back to you. Um, that's number one. Number two, getting ready for the show. And I think I have this right. I didn't have time to look it up. But I think on the subject of time... St. Augustine says, if no one asks me, I know what time is. If someone asks me, I have no idea what time is. And you could almost say the same thing about emotions. It's, it's, it's a word. Emotion has a meaning to us until we are asked to provide a definition. Fortunately, we have guests on the show today who are prepared to provide definitions and in some cases to provide you even with new words for emotions you have that have no name. We, we, by the end of today, one of the emotions you'll feel, one of the emotions you'll, you'll, that will inhabit you, if that's what emotions do, uh, will be the sense of being much more prepared to experience and name your emotions. And that's a guarantee. So uh, joining us right now is Edgar Gerard Hughes, a researcher at London's Queen Mary Center for the History of the Emotions and editor of the Book of Emotions, also known as How Do You Feel here in the United States? Because, you know, because we're in the United States. That's the kind of thing we ask is how do you feel? Uh, So first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Um, Yeah, and that's a lovely quote by St. Augustine. I'm not sure I've heard that before, but it really does encapsulate something that the book is trying to get across much more um, more verbosely than than you put it just there. Right. But but let's get at that a little bit. I mean, you know, we have to have some kind of working definition for emotion Mm. or emotions. So what's that going to be? Well, so I think... uh, 
there is a common sense view of emotions that most people have inherited, uh, which is they are basically sensations, uh, kind of bodily fluctuations that kind of the consciousness of which exists in some corner of our mind. And, uh, you know, most of the time we're mostly in control of our thoughts and thoughts are completely separate from emotions. And then once in a while, a strong feeling will bubble up and, and overwhelm us and we'll have a choice of whether to resist it or to accept it and, and allow our actions to be dictated to it by it. And I think that's that's what a lot of people, that's how a lot of people think of emotions is basically as sensations in that way. And I think a good way to start thinking about that is emotions I mean, emotions literally means motion. It comes it comes from a French word meaning motion. And actually that only started to be used in English commonly in the, around the 18th century. Um, so the word emotion, although emotion seems like a universal and timeless thing, uh, it's actually not been around as a word in English that long. And since the, before then we had a much more diverse and diffuse way of talking about, about feelings, which include words like passion or sentiment or sensibility. And all of those things meant slightly different things. It could be they had a moral implication or, or they emphasized the physical element of it uh, or a religious, religious connotations. And um, really that idea of emotions being sort of bodily things that are kind of beyond your control, maybe some remnant of an, an animal instinct, that started to come up in the 18th century and really got developed with the evolutionary theory. So I, I think when we talk about emotions, we're unconsciously uh, endorsing this idea that emotions are basically kind of animal instincts that exist in a separate corner of our brain. And I'm not saying we should never do that. I'm not anti-science and I'm certainly not anti-evolutionary theory, but I think uh, maybe that does a disservice to the range of phenomena we're talking, we're talking about when we're talking about, about feelings. Um, and that's kind of what this book is trying to do is uh, just explore some of those different ways of thinking about, about emotions and how they manifest and how we kind of negotiate them. All right. So um, I'm going to play a clip from a movie called Inside Slash Out. Uh, and uh, this is uh, a movie if you've never seen it. Uh, in which emotions are kind of abstracted. There are these kind of uh, abstracted characters. The one thing that I can tell you about Inside Out is that if you do not, if you don't have a lot of experience with drugs and you happen to on a given evening have been given a sublingual uh, cannabis product and then you're looking for, don't watch this movie, all right? Because if you're already freaked out, it will really scare you. I think it's meant to be a very gentle comedy. But So you're going to hear a whole bunch of famous people uh, voicing the emotions, joy, fear, anger, disgust, sadness, uh, and you're going to hear the two human characters, Riley and her dad. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Uh, okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! <laughs> yeah! I just saved our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not going to get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Riley, ah! Honey, here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh. Airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. <gasps> 
So to some degree, this movie works off a, a notion called a basic emotion theory. This notion, and Edgar, maybe you can help me out here, but as I understand it, it's a theory that certain emotions that are kind of like the primary color equivalents mm. of emotions are hired, hardwired into human beings. We just have them. So react mm -hmm. to that. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say before I... Uh, criticized the theories underlying that film that it's a lovely movie and obviously it made me cry and obviously there's something very very real about that that uh, portrayal it has of different different kind of impulses and feelings battling within you for your attention uh and especially it's great i i, I mean the the sort of um valorization of sadness as a positive emotion at the end of it is is really moving and, and lovely uh i think that there's there's a the basic emotions theory basically says that there are a certain number of core emotions that are basically universal and exist throughout all cultures and times, and they're called basic emotions, and they're essentially the building blocks for all other more complex uh, types of feeling. Um, I think that there's nothing really basic about emotions at all. We can we can kind of categorize emotions in lots of different ways. There are, lang there are languages, for instance, that don't have a concept of, of anger, or, or, or which who conflates anger and fear. There are Inuit cultures that don't have a concept for anger. There are cultures uh, in in the south southeastern Asia where if you show a an angry face, then they will categorise that as fear. There's no there's no single emotion which is which is universally uh, expressed or universally acknowledged all over the world. Um, and really, every time we use a word for an emotion, we're kind of telling a story about about what that emotion means and how it feels so you know there's there's things like happiness indexes which which measure uh how different how happy different uh, populations are in different countries across the world um but you know maybe that would be different if we used a word like contentment which has different connotations there are some cultures who aspire to happiness and think of that as a as a, as a goal for their life and there are some where it's seen as basically a bit superficial and contemptible so every time we use we use a word for an emotion I, I think that we are sort of telling a narrative about that and saying something about ourselves as well. So there's much more room for negotiation between different feelings. Right. So and, and I think uh, I, I want to come back to the cultural piece, the anthropological piece, mm. maybe a little bit towards the end of the show. But but I think even within within any standing culture, there are mm. differences. I mean, tests like the Meyer, Myers-Briggs personality evaluations, those kinds of things. Mm. One of the axes they look at is thinking versus feeling. Just very, yeah. very quickly here. I used to people listen to the show for a long time. I used to have on with me as sort of an announcer slash sidekick and producer, Kion Wolf. Uh, and eventually we did kind of a Myers-Briggs evaluation and it was pointed out to me that she's a much more emotion-centered kind of person. She processes right. a lot of life through her emotions, which I, I tend not to do, which had resulted in massive misunderstandings between us. By the way, she now has her own wonderful show here on this uh, station called Audacious, uh, which is kind of almost a little bit of an emotional title. And if you listen to the show, she's so terrific at it, but she asks people a lot. How did that feel? How are you feeling? Whereas, Edgar, I'm probably not going to ask you how it felt to publish your book. <laughs> you know, I'm going to ask you a bunch of other questions. So, I mean, I think there's a suggestion anyway that we are not all created emotionally equal even before life goes to work on us. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, is valuable about things like Myers-Briggs tests, you can argue about, about their scientific validity, but it just gives us a kind of... Um, value neutral language to talk about things that are often often quite freighted with judgment so you know i'm 
I'm quite, I mean, I would say I'm quite disorganized, but uh, that's, uh, but, but when I, when I say I'm a P, that's, <laughs> that sounds a lot less, a lot less awful and it makes, it gives people a chance to <laughs> help see things from different perspectives uh, without, without implying that you're procrastinating judgment on them. I, and I think that's actually kind of relevant to, to what I've been trying to say because there's no there's no emotion word that doesn't that doesn't have some value judgment attached to it, uh, and in different languages that might be different. Anger is a, let's just stick with the example of anger. The the ancient if you read the Iliad, anger is a kind of quite virtuous emotion. It's a it's emotion of self assertion and uh, military masculinity, whereas now it's seen as a kind of loss of control a lot of the time. And again, uh, it depends on on who you're thinking about. Uh, female anger is often treated as more as 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 more uncontrolled uh, than than male anger, and more more powerful. Uh, and female anger is often vilified. So, so I think that's the that that's the sort of the way in which the language we use about feelings is constantly in flux and constantly. Uh, we're getting, being given different ways to express feelings, and and I think we just have much more much more variety, despite much more of a wide menu of emotions available to us than we often acknowledge. And right. so I think that my problem with basic emotions, just to bring it back to that, is just that it implies that um, we're a slave to these uh, these uncontrollable bits of our animal biology, uh, which we just have to accept that they exist. And, and the, uh, the only question is how much we express them and whether we're allowed to express them. But I think that we have much more much more agency and uh, there's a much richer world of emotion cultural world of emotion out there right i was going to bring up the iliad too but you beat me to it well let's talk about that <laughs> idea of ex- of expressing emotions all right because i think there's also a sense i mean I, you know for 100 years or so we've been more or less on the same page I would argue anyway, you know, with Freud's essential statement, he says unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. There's that idea anyway that if you're not expressing your emotions, you're conceivably damaging yourself. Uh, Here in America, the number four book on the bestseller list, it's been there for 71 weeks, uh, is a Mm. book called The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body, and the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk, who also works off this idea that, you know, that our our emotions, uh, if not dealt with in real time, uh, will hurt us. But, you know, there are massive cultural differences about this. And, you know, as an Irish-American, Edgar, and uh, you're you, Mm. I mean, I would say Anglo-Saxon and Celtic people have this kind of notion that maybe you do stuff down your emotions. We're God's frozen people, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very keen on on therapy and talking about emotions and being being emotionally open. But I don't think there are no downsides to that. Uh, you know, there are studies of atrocities where people, where kind of uh, people have so therapists have visited communities that have been dam- damaged by some uh, collective tragedy years later and suddenly mental health difficulties have popped up among that population because they've had a structure for containing those feelings uh, that's been disrupted by the insistence they need to talk about it in order to be healthy so um i think it's 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 you know there's no one correct way of of of, of encountering feelings or managing them uh, right. And I, there, there are big cultural differences there. I mean, getting ready for this show, I, I found a study uh, of Belgian and Japanese uh, couples uh, in which mm. they were sort of given the same scenarios and then sort of interrogated about their emotions and their emotional reactions to it. Mm. And ultimately, the Japanese couple saw nothing wrong with suppressing emotions or saw very little wrong with suppressing emotions mm. uh, compared to the, I don't know whether Belgian people are particularly emotionally volatile or not. I don't know why they were yeah. chosen as the as the anti- 
antithesis. But there was a real cultural difference that probably, you know, isn't viewed as neurotic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in here in Britain, we've definitely had a kind of reckoning with that in the last 20 or 30 years. There's, there's a narrative that we've just become much, much more emotional uh, due to your influence, you Americans, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that, we, that we used to have this idea of stiff upper lip and that the best way of, 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 kind of, of encountering difficult things was basically to suppress more or less and um, to kind of soldier on and became, remain stoical. Well, the, um, the, the series The Crown is, you know, a four-year yeah. interrogation of that very question and what happens to people in a family where, in fact, there really is an almost pathological suppression of emotions and, and corresponding withholding uh, of emotions. And it's not a pretty picture there. Absolutely. And then uh, also with the royal family, uh, Princess Diana died in 1997, and there was this sudden outpouring of grief and mourning and kind of but sentimentality, but I'm not implying that since it was insincere. I, I was quite young at that point, but I just remember sudden transformation of, of sight. I remember my, my little sister, who was even younger than me, she must have been three years old, uh, waking up at four o'clock and, and finding out about Princess Diana's death, having never really heard of her even before, and then and by, by, by kind of breakfast time she was setting up a little shrine in her in living room <laughs> well the, the movie the movie the, somehow... yeah the movie the queen uh, is in fact about uh, tony blair's effort to get queen elizabeth to yeah. do something about this that she mm-hmm. doesn't have any emotional effusion she doesn't see any need for it she probably does regard this as something mm-hmm. that came over from the americas you know and and, yeah. and she doesn't want to have to deal with it and and he ultimately yeah. persuades her no the public is going to need to see an emotion from you it's almost mm-hmm. i think scary to not see emotions at a time when you think they're called for go ahead absolutely yeah and i think that that's that's often treated as the moment when when we started to be more kind of emotionally effusive uh and perhaps some sometimes emotionally performative if you want to frame it in a different way but in a way the the kind of stiff upper lip idea is uh is more complicated than sometimes people assume because there's always been a sentimentality to British culture. It's like the Victorians were the people who are probably most famous for refusing to be moved by things, you know, Queen Victoria uh, saying she was not amused. But then she was also, Queen Victoria was also the person who mourned for decades after her husband's death. And they had this very, very kind of rich, uh, almost fetishistic mourning culture. So I think that that kind of emotional style of stoicism can also can also come along with a sort of um, a, 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 an, an implication that there are deep emotions lying underneath that you're sort of tacitly expressing even when you're even when you're performing the suppression of them. So I, I don't think it's ever as simple as just emotionality versus versus lack of emotionality. I think we have a language of, of, of emotional expression which can also involve involve silence or involve a kind of um, stoicism or a sort of public struggle with the, with, with the feelings that you're having. Right. Um, I think one yeah. of the things your book de- deals with really well, I don't think we're going to have time to really discuss it, uh, but um, professions, jobs where, in fact, you're expected to manage your emotions in a kind of an extreme mm-hmm. way. You talk about flight attendants, waitresses, child care workers, uh, bouncers, police officers, tax collectors all have to kind of do performative emotions and not perform their mm-hmm. real emotions. And I think here during the pandemic, it's gotten worse because you're dealing with people who are crazy and defying rules and, and you're still not supposed to crack. You're still not 
supposed to tell them to f off. Yeah. Uh, and and there's got to be some massive cost to all that. We're gonna take a quick break though, uh, and don't worry, our guest will be back here for the second segment. We've got so much more to talk about. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Sometimes we don't know what to feel, and we also don't know why we're feeling what we're feeling. Our guest, uh, Edgar Gerard Hughes, uh, is um, uh, the editor of the book, The Book of Emotions, also known as How Do You Feel in the United States, a researcher at London's Queen Mary Center for the History of the Emotions, uh, and he's with us now. Um, You know, I mean, one thing that we probably should get into, because you get into it a lot, is the physicality of of emotions, the the bodily topography uh, of emotions, rages here, anxieties here, you know, in in all these different places. And and that whole question, uh, you know, I think you said William James uh, as Mm -hmm. sort of saying, well, maybe what's happening here is you're having a sense of a set of physical reactions because you just Mm -hmm. saw a bear. And, you know, and your heart started racing and this started happening. And so then the emotion becomes the name of that set of uh, of physical reactions that you're having. I don't know. Maybe you say a little bit more about how you see this. It, this is another moving target, right? It changes across yeah. time and across cultures. Yeah. So the, the what's known as the James Lang theory of emotions, that the idea that uh, the, it's not that you feel fear and then your heart starts racing or you feel love and then you feel butterflies in your stomach. It's, it's the other way around. What the emotion is, is just a subjective experience of something that's going on in your body. So, for instance, he, he, he talks about seeing a bear. I don't know whether he actually saw a bear. I very much doubt it. But it, uh, the idea is that you'd instead of seeing the bear feeling fear and then running, what would happen is you'd see the bear 
your heart would start to pulsate, your palms would start to sweat, and then and then you'd kind of label those those feelings fear, and then you'd run away. That's that's a that's one way of thinking about emotions, which is quite close to this kind of physicalist idea I was talking about at the beginning. Um, I think that's very valid in a lot of contexts. I think there's undeniably a massive physicality to emotions. In fact, sometimes I feel like that's the only thing I can say for sure about emotions is that when I sit still and examine myself is that I have all of this kind of unease and uh, strange kind of awareness of things going on in my body and um, and that I'm feeling some sort of emotion. And beyond that, it's all up for grabs, really. Um, but there's another another way of thinking about emotions, which is called cognitive account of emotions, which is uh, that when you feel when you feel fear, what you're really doing is saying uh, you're making it involves making a prediction about the future. So you see something that you think might be dangerous. You're deciding that it's dangerous, and that idea of danger is is part of the fear as well. So that's something that, would, that implies the emotion emotion would involve the whole brain rather than just rather than just one small part of it that has to do with the awareness of your body. Um, and that's that gives a lot more scope for thinking about the way emotions are psychologically constructed. So we're taught how to feel, feel emotions as children in that view of them. Uh, when you see a child uh, crying, you might say to, say to them, uh, you're just you're just sad rather than rather than rather than anything else. Or you're just or this is not your real sadness. You're just tired or um or don't be angry when they're kind of lashing out or something like that. You're in a way teaching them a vocabulary of emotions that um, that implies some some kind of actual judgment that they can they, they have some control over those things. So those are the two different ways of thinking about them. But in any case, it always I mean there's no doubt it involves emotions always involve the body and they feel like very bodily things. I think that you can't really make a distinction between body and mind when it comes to emotions but i honestly don't think you can even when it comes to thought so mm. <laughs> yeah. so you get into this this next thing in the book i happen also to be in the middle of reading uh, clara and the sun uh, uh, issue mm. guru's a new novel about an artificial intelligence uh, companion uh, who is studying people all the time trying to trying to understand their emotions and their emotional cues and what they all mean and and how you know their eyes might tell a different story from what they're saying but also seems to be developing some kind of set of emotions uh, on her mm. or it or, or its own all the time this is not a new theme people who watch star trek cat uh, we're going to go to b1 b1 right now know this uh, whole conversation very well for the past six hours, I have attempted to produce an emotional response by subjecting myself to various stimuli. Like what? I listened to several operas known to be uplifting. I watched three holodeck programs designed to be humorous. And I made four attempts to induce sexual desire by subjecting myself to erotic imagery. What happened? Nothing. I'm curious. Why are you ignoring the one emotion you've already experienced? Why aren't you trying to make yourself angry again? Anger is a negative emotion. I wanted to concentrate on something more positive. Data, feelings aren't positive and negative. They simply exist. It's what we do with those feelings that becomes good or bad. For example, Feeling angry about an injustice could lead someone to take a positive action to correct it. But my study of humanity indicates there are some emotions that are harmful, such as jealousy or hatred. Those are very strong emotions, and you're right. 
Very little good can come from them. But I don't think that an exploration of anger need necessarily lead to hatred or malice. But what if it does, counselor? All right, Edgar, I'm guessing you could do about an hour uh, of reaction uh, to, to that <laughs> clip uh, at a bunch of different levels. I have a specific place I want to go, but but I do want to let you I want to let you react on your own to what you just heard. Oh, I mean, it's a it's a great clip. It's very funny. I I think um yeah this 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 whole that that, that whole theme of kind of uh, emotions being a core part of how how artificial intelligence can can be can come across as human is so interesting. And, and actually, there are lots and lots of AI researchers now working on on kind of trying to teach machines uh, emotional intelligence because there's such a sense that this is something kind of uniquely and purely human. I think that's a, I mean, I don't necessarily fully disagree with it, but I think it's an interesting idea that's worth exploring. But um, yeah, what's and obviously there's not a machine that he's talking to, but I think that when you're talking about Clara and the Sun, it's a, yeah, it, it kind of taps into the same sort of themes. Right, and it also taps into the theme of themes about whether there are, you know, emotions that are intrinsically good or intrinsically mm, yeah, bad. Absolutely. And Counselor Troy is kind of pushing back against the idea that anger has to be bad all the time. That's also something yeah. that you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I uh, one of the pieces that commissioned in this book is a sort of like a celebration of of uh, female anger as a sort of revolutionary force. So that's that's one way in which I think anger has been rehabilitated a lot recently. Is the, the idea that the anger of oppressed people can can be something really empowering? Um, and then on the other hand, I always think of um, Brett Kavanaugh in, in the in the USA, his performance in uh, in his hearing. To, like projecting this anger, which I've no doubt was actually was very like deliberately felt, but was also this this strategy. And there's a very it feels like there was a very different the very big difference between that kind of anger and an anger that comes from sort of lashing out in the moment and and, and lacking a sense of control. But you know, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would I would I would question to be honest that in that clip whether that the the therapist seems to accept that there are some intrinsically negative emotions that should be suppressed. But you know, I think there are lots of lots of people who would say that jealousy is partly a consciousness of inequality and injustice and that even that emotion um can can be a can be a positive thing i think that you know and envy envy has its purposes as well uh, and it really tell it depends on the story you tell about those things right well there's envy and then there's jealousy and jealousy mm. also is i mean one of the things that the book does is to treat love as an emotion. I would argue that love is a condition mm. from which depend on strings, you know, this whole menu of, of emotions yeah. uh, that, that are occasioned by love, one of them being jealousy. But you probably can't feel that particular kind of jealousy unless you have really loved. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, love, I guess, another one is, that's interesting to think about in the context of different cultures because... You know, when we think about love, we tend our mind tends to go to romantic love, but really it's just a whole complex of different of different emotional experiences that you might have. And this idea of like romantic chivalric love actually sprung up at different parts of the world at, at, in in different times, uh, but it's not universal, and it certainly doesn't encapsulate everything we think of when we think of love. And maybe it's more maybe maybe in in some in in some contexts uh, when we're thinking about. I mean, I've started meditating recently, and when 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 people talk about love and meditation, it's more about an attitude to the world, a sort of openness to experience, um, and maybe that's a more useful way of thinking about love. But I think that we're, it's a huge category, and we're quite confused when we talk about it because I don't think that uh, my love of yoga is the same as my love of my mom is the same as my 
love of uh, existence when I'm feeling in the most benevolent possible mood. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I think that talking about love and emotion is, is very, very complicated and confusing idea. All right. Uh, well, uh, we will get you even more confused uh, on the other side of this break because we're going to be uh, joined by another guest. John Koenig is going to join me and Edgar to talk uh, about our words for emotions uh, and the value of maybe inventing words when the right word doesn't exist for a complex uh, interplay of emotions. So that's all coming up after this. For today's show, the technical producer, as usual, was Kat Pastor. I don't know much about her emotional state, but I do know that she believes that her emotional state could whip your emotional state's ass. Uh, and uh, Lily Taylor, our senior producer, is also the producer of this episode. Uh, what did I say? What did I say? Taylor. What's wrong with me? I must be having emotions. Lily Tyson uh, is our senior producer. Uh, I don't even know our senior producer is. That's how emotional I'm feeling right now. And I'm sure, by the way, uh, John Koenig uh, is going to have a word for that, for forgetting somebody's name and then feeling terrible about it. Uh, he is the author of the Dictionary of Obscure uh, Sorrows. Also still with us, Edgar Gerard Hughes, uh, who is a researcher at London's Queen Mary Center for the History of Emotions uh, and the editor of the Book of Emotions, also known as How Do You Feel in the United States. Before we get to John, uh, um, Edgar, one of the interesting things here is that there are a lot of old words for emotions that have not survived. And, and one particular pattern is that because uh, this comes up a lot, you know, when people notice that there, you can be disgruntled but not gruntled. You can be dismayed but not made. You can be ruthless but not ruthful. You can be reckless but not wreckful. But once upon a time, you could be all those opposite things, right? Yeah, yeah, no, those are called lost, uh, lost positives. So we still, we still have the negation of those terms, but we've lost some somewhere along the way uh, the original word. So, you, for instance, ruthful. Ruth is actually like uh, an idea meaning something like tenderness and compassion and sorrow. Uh, maybe one of the obscure sorrows that we're going to talk about. But, uh, <laughs> but they, yeah, but the. You could once be ruthful or ruthless, but now now ruthless is the only survivor. And you know, you could be similarly gruntled, gormful, or wreckful, or made rather than dismayed. So um yeah, it's interesting that these these kind of emotions that's that apparently once existed and have fallen by the wayside. There's also, I think, before we get to I should say also that we have a freelance producer right now who uh, is mm. working on a show, an entire episode about Schadenfreude. So uh, but that mm. brings up sort of there's a kind of a chicken and egg question about the how different cultures have different words in them uh, mm. for different emotions, right? I mean, the Russians have a word, I think it's Tosca, uh, for which describes maddening dissatisfaction, which if you've known a lot of Russians, you could sort of see why there would need, there would need <laughs> to be a word like that. But you sort of wonder, <laughs> is there a word like that because it's a particularly Russian condition, emotional condition, or is it somehow the other way around? Are they just gotten better at naming things? I don't expect you to know the answer to that, but I'd love to hear what you yeah, thought. I mean, that's the million dollar question really, isn't it? I, I, I think that in a way you can't, the, my, the cheat answer is that you can't really disentangle the two as far as I'm concerned. That you know, the words for emotions, the languages and and structures that we have for expression, expressing emotions, or in some way they become part of the emotion itself. Uh, so I mean, you can say that when you, when, for instance, um, Bertrand Russell has a has a section 
uh, has a, a section of the book of his where he talks about falling in love the moment he first said I love you and that's when the love came into being because expressing it somehow gave him permission to interpret his feelings in those ways and I think that's true with all emotions to some extent but you know once we find a word for them then a, then a kind of clarity and coherence to them comes into being so maybe if we were Russian we would uh, we would leap for that word more often and therefore feeling that feel that feeling more often. Well, that's a perfect on-ramp for our other guest. Uh, John Koenig is here with us. Uh, he is a specialist in, uh, in fact, inventing uh, um, words that do not exist for emotions that do. Um, I've got your whole list here, John. First of all, welcome to our conversation. I've got your whole list here, but I, I, it probably makes sense, at least at the beginning, to, to have you pick. Give us a, a few of your favorite words. Uh, sure. There, there's uh, one in particular um, that seems to have caught on in, in, in a way that uh, only almost became a real word in and of itself. Um, it's a sonder. It's the awareness that everyone around you is the main character of their own story. Though to you, they're just, you know, random passersby passing in the background, the, the, the extras in your story. But um, the reality is that they're, they're the main characters as well uh, in their own story. I think you. Um, I think you've had the experience of overhearing people in a public space use this word that you made up as if it were a completely usable word. That's right, and it's it's it adorns the you know the names of coffee shops and billion dollar corporations, and mm -hmm. it appears in tattoos, and it's 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 all over um, in a way that um, really changed my attitude about language because uh, you know it it reinforces that all the words that we use every day and take so seriously were invented by people really not too different from me. Right. Yeah. Is there a word for the emotion you feel when you hear a word that you invented uh, being incorporated <laughs> into the common tongue? I'll, I'll work on that one. Yeah. All right. Give us another one. Uh, sure. There is, uh, uh, let's see, uh, nictus, which is the, uh, it's an adjective. It's feeling quietly overjoyed to be the only one awake in the middle of the night. <laughs> Um, there, there is sort of, um, a, you know, an opposite counterpart to Nictus, right? Which is the dismay of, about being the only one awake in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, I have a similar one, actually, that's uh, Obadoir, which is the, uh, the point just before 5 a.m. when, uh, you know, the romanticism of a late night certain, suddenly turns over and you hear the birds chirping and the sun starts rising. And you're like, oh, God, I still haven't gone to bed. <laughs> so... So um, let me bring up another one. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Is it lachism, lachism, lachism? Lachism. Lachism. Explain what that is. That's the longing for the clarity of disaster. So, you know, when the, there's a storm approaching on the horizon and, uh, you know, you hope everything goes well, but a part of you is actually rooting for the storm, uh, you know, to just complete catastrophe that could just shake up your life and, and clarify all of your priorities. Right. You know, it's interesting. Um George Carlin uh, had actually, I can't think it got turned into an album, uh, but he had this whole routine that that began. I kind of like it when a lot of people die, um, and and he kind of right. he described his the the fact that he enjoyed he enjoyed hearing about disasters, he enjoyed oncoming disasters, he enjoyed the notion. He said like the worst words. I mean, he's a comedian, so it's unclear how much he meant this. But comedians are always trying to tap into what we really do feel. And he, he said, you know, the, nobody was hurt is his least favorite thing to hear at the end of a news story about a hurricane. Right. And I empathize with that, even though part of me is also, you know, appalled, as, as it should be. But uh, yeah. 
So, Edgar, as you're listening to this, and I'm sure you're aware of John's work uh, anyway, um, I mean, this is sort of the process of history, right? There there are always are people looking just in the same sense that, that John had the experience of hearing his word Sonder suddenly getting, getting used yeah. in common parlance. As he says, that's what happens, right? You, you have to come up with these words. Yeah, no, words are invented by people, and, and it's a, I mean that must be an amazing feeling to, to hear a word you've you coined uh, being used by by people out of, in a completely different context. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's true of of a lot of a lot of emotions that they didn't necessarily uh, come up organically. Uh, in some cases, like boredom, for instance, boredom was was a word that was basically invented in the 19th century by an obscure columnist, but then kind of popularized by by Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens in Bleak House was the first person to really uh, introduce the concept of boredom. And before then, boredom, in some sense, didn't exist. Uh, so that's that's the that's that's one great example of it. And and that there are some some other examples like that in which kind of literary figures. Uh, or comedians have introduced the name for words, but a lot. A, another very common thing is for words from psychology to be taken on by by um, kind of ordinary vernacular. So, for instance, nostalgia yes. that was basically a term invented uh, to describe the feelings felt felt by um, soldiers who who were who were who were far away, and that was actually supposed to be a deadly disorder. People were dying of nostalgia. It was a kind of like pathological homesickness. Right. I, I, that one was coined by Johannes Hofer in 1688. Right. Um, and, and yeah, they they it was, I think, the occasion of it might have been the Thirty Years' War. Uh, at least six soldiers were discharged from the Spanish army of Flanders with mal de corazon. There was something wrong. Mm-hmm. There was something kind of wrong with them emotionally. And somehow or other, we've transformed this. I'd love to have both of you react to this, actually, but Edgar, you can start. We've transformed nostalgia into a very kind of desirable state of mind. I mean, yes, there's some kind of sense of longing or pining for the past, but there's also a sense of having experienced a past worth longing or pining for. Yeah, there's a kind of wistful romanticism to the idea of nostalgia, which definitely didn't exist in the original sort of pathological form of nostalgia. And that's quite common, actually, that you could say something similar about melancholia. Melancholia was originally, again, a serious disorder, something a little bit like depression, but it often came with something called the glass disorder. The glass, um, it's, but basically, people used to think that they were made of glass and that anything, any tiny touch would shatter them, sometimes almost literally. So uh, that's that's kind of softened again from being this this um, this emotional disorder into being something almost quite desirable, like a poetic kind of sadness, and um, that kind of interchange between between uh, the language of disease and, and psychological disease and the language of just ordinary everyday feeling is. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the really interesting things about the way that we talk about emotions and how how it's developed over history. Yeah, John, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I think um, it's uh, that's one of the things that I've tried to do with this book. It's the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows is a sort of redeemed sadness itself um, and turn it into, um, I think typically people tend to, def- you know, conflate it with despair as, a, yeah. you know, the absence of hope. But for me, at least, sadness can be a, just a tremendous presence. It's an upwelling, you know, that the etymology of the word sadness is it originally meant fullness. Uh, from the same root as you know, sated and satisfaction, and so I think if we open our open ourselves to the beauty of sadness, um, you know, we can remind ourselves how fleeting and mysterious and you know, open ended life can be. 
Right. Well, I, actually, I want to bring up another one of your words, which I believe is pronounced onism. Is Am I pronouncing it correctly? O-N-I-S-M? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Onism. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this has nothing to do with spilling your seed. That's a different word. But um, <laughs> but uh, explain onism uh, to, to us. Yeah, sure. Uh, onism is um, the awareness of how little of the world you'll experience uh, before you die. You you only have one body. You only have one lifetime. And so you're just, just barely scratching the surface of all that existence has to offer. And and what's the ut- explain the utility of a word like that? Like why why do we need that word? Um I think you know as as we were saying earlier in the conversation it you know having a word for something can kind of crystallize something that was just sort of in the background and by shining a light on it um you can uh you know you you can make that feeling uh present and and you can give yourself permission to feel it. Uh, in the case of onism, it's, you know, whenever I, I walk through an airport, um, you know, and you walk by so many gates heading to so many exotic places all around the world, but you only have one gate and that's, that's where you'll, that's where you'll go and you'll have to sort of make your peace with that. Um, there's, there's something, there's something beautiful about having to make your peace with uh, a part of reality. And, and I think it helps us connect with each other if we can, uh, if we can do that a little more clearly. And I suppose also just acknowledging the existence of onism and our own onism means also that you shouldn't let this one life fly by. You may just scratch the surface of reality, but you want to make a fairly deep scratch. Exactly. Yeah. We have such a such a tiny window uh, to to enjoy our, our lives. Um, make make of it as much as you can. You know, uh, Edgar, it does seem also that when the word doesn't exist and John can't be reached on his phone to get him to invent the word that we need, the other thing that we do, and we've been alluding to this uh, all along, is borrow it from another language. And so, yes, schadenfreude is a great example. But so there are several different words in other languages. I think the Danish one is the one that we've been borrowing the most for the feeling of being cozy despite inclement and cold weather, right? There's, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce H-Y-G-G-E. Every time I learn it, I immediately uh, yeah. forget. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a word that we want, right? Because we know what that word means uh, and, and, and yet we don't have it. Yeah, and I think that pe- people people love reading about these these uh, these words that exist in other languages because there's some there's a there's a little person of pleasure about about hearing something described that you that you can really relate to but but have never never have that heard encapsulated in that way which is uh, why I think John's book is such a great idea but yeah there are great there are so many examples of that another another great one that is kind of coming into the language more and more is giggle have you have you heard of that no this is a, this is a term for the sort of disconcertingly violent impulse you feel towards things that are that are cute. So you might want to squeeze a cat, or you might even have, have some kind of like uh, alarming rush of a slightly bloodthirsty instinct when you see something something cute. And there's lots of there's actually lots of scientific research into this and various explanations for why it might why it might be. Uh, but yeah, there, I mean there are there are there are all kinds of there are all kinds of examples like that of words that exist in other languages. And some in some cases they seem to say something specific about that culture, which we can't really relate to. Uh, something about kind of cultures with honor systems or histories of displacement. Um, but in other cases, they they like speak to something that seems really universal universal that we haven't quite put our finger on yet. So, John, a lot of your words kind of have to do, I think, with existential questions. I mean, onism mm-hmm. does, sonder does to a certain degree. There's another one. Once again, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce these words. Embedo, uh, embedo, you say embedo, I say embedo. Uh, uh, tell us what that is. 
Yeah, so the ambido is the uh, a momentary trance of emotional clarity. Um, and that's that's one of the ones that was sort of hardest to pin down. But I think it has it has to do with with languages, a certain mood when you you look around and you find yourself just sort of present in existence um, where you're just sort of, you know, shrug off whatever thing, whatever thing is supposed to mean and instead just take it for what it is. And I think it's, it's sort of an accidental meditation, if anything, a little you, you just soak in the melancholy of being alive. And it's to me, it's a, it's, it's a tremendous thrill. Uh, Ambito. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for the Ambito. <laughs> I, I don't know whether how volitional it is, uh, or, or whether you just mm. either get it or, or you don't. Uh, but but it seems to be worth striving for. But I mean, that actually sort of pinpoints probably the last question we'll have time to explore. Hopefully, I can get both of you to comment on it. But John, maybe you start. Do we sure. do we wind up understanding our emotional lives better as a result of having these new or different words? For them, there's a sense in which a lot of the times we're sort of not experiencing ambido because we just don't. We're not even really aware of who we are or what we're doing or how we're feeling in the universe at a given moment. Yeah, I think there's a couple reasons that language comes about. One is to allow you to talk about things that you can see clearly around you, and you know, talk about the you know the buffalo in the field. Um, but then there's also we use language to organize, you know, the, the storehouse inside our own heads. And that's that second use, I think, is is the one that's been the most neglected. Um, and I, I've got a lot of emails from people in response to my book saying that, um, you know, even if I never use this in conversation, um, it just it gives me a tremendous sense of solace to, uh, you know, to to be able to recognize it just just, you know, while, while it's just me sitting alone in a room. And, you know, that's it's a beautiful thing. All right. I'm now having the emotion of having lied to my guest because I don't have time to hear Edgar out on this. But uh, um, Edgar Gerard Hughes, researcher at London's Queen Mary Center for the History of Emotions, the editor of the Book of Emotions, also known as How Do You Feel in the United States, John Koenig, author of The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Thanks once again to Lily Tyson for producing this show, Kat Pastor for technically producing this show, and to all of you for listening. I'm experiencing an emotion of gratitude. I can't stop the I can't stop the Nothing I can see but you when you dance